Amen. Good morning. Good to see you all. Go ahead and have a seat. Make yourself comfortable. First Corinthians chapter 8 this morning. And I wanted to just make a comment real quick about our children's ministry servant day today. Um, I hope that if you are able, that you will come back for that. Again, even if you're not sure that that's necessarily what God's call is upon your life, but even just to get information. I think a lot of people think about children's ministry and they kind of put themselves into a category and they go, well, I'm either this or this and I'm not that, so maybe I'm not a good fit. But there are so many different ways in which you can assist as it relates to children's ministry or any ministry in this church. And it's possible you haven't even thought through how you might. And I just wanted to give you a thought jogger this morning. Stephanie alluded to it, but uh, just as a something, as a way of helping you to see the depth and the breadth of children's ministry and the needs that we have. As a specific example, we're looking for a married couple, a seasoned married couple that's been walking with the Lord for some time now um, to come alongside our junior high group. You know, we're going to split the high school and junior hires here in the fall for good. No turning back. And we have a couple young men that are going to be leading that group and we need not a, a couple that has to teach or anything like that, but just has to come alongside them and lift their arms up and support them, insulate them, protect them, encourage them in the ministry that they're going to be doing. And so that could be you this morning. That could be you. You could be a good candidate for that. And I'd ask you to prayerfully consider that. But it's things like that that are going to come up from time to time. And so it's important that well, you're prayerfully always going to the Lord and seeking him as it relates to his will and his calling upon your life and, and how you might be used for his purposes. First Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. He says, Now concerning things offered to idols. And when he says things, we're going to see here in a little bit, he's talking about meat. Meat that had been offered up to idols. Seems kind of like an abrupt way to begin a chapter. But of course, remember, no chapter break, no chapters when Paul writes. And he's in a portion here of the text in 1 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 7, where he's just going down a list of questions that he's answering that the Corinthians had asked him, and he's doing that here. He began, as I said, in chapter 7 by talking about things, uh, marriage, sex within marriage, divorce, those kinds of things. Things, perhaps, questions they asked him about that maybe they should have already known the answer to those questions. But then he comes to the end of chapter 7 and then here on into chapter 8 and beyond, and we get to these so-called gray areas of Scripture. Not every single issue in life is um, explicitly addressed in scripture. But what we do have is sort of implicit principles that we can draw from these kind of examples. In fact, chapter 8 is a perfect example where the issue in chapter 8 isn't really the issue. But it's used that we can draw a principle out that's important for our edification as a church body. In fact, we saw that last time also. Great principle from a text that wasn't immediately applicable. He was talking about people that are single as opposed to are married. And again, it was sort of a gray area because the principle was remain. In whatever state in which God called you, remain. If God called you while married, remain married. If God 
called you while single, remain single. But he said, if you do marry, if you're single, if you choose to marry, you do not sin. It's okay. Go ahead and get married. Even for a widow, he said, go ahead and remarry. You do not sin. But the principle was, in general, remain because there are some advantages to staying single. And he pointed out some of those last time. But if you are single, the exhortation for us was, hey, caution. Take your time. Wait on the Lord. Make sure you've heard from the Lord before you jump into marriage. Last time there was a woman here visiting who attends Twin Lakes Church and she teaches or facilitates a class on Christian dating and came up to me afterwards and was talking to me about this class. And she said that in the class, one of the things that they encourage all of the singles to do is to really take their time, to really seek the Lord as it relates to this, because this Christian dating scene is kind of complicated today. She said, especially for the ladies. She said, because there are a lot of men out there who know Christianese, that can talk the lingo, that can make themselves appear to be Christians, when in reality, they're not really walking with the Lord, or at least their walk with God is not as serious to them as it is to you. And so she cautions them. She cautions them to exercise caution and patience in getting into that scene. And I said it last time. I said, hey, you don't need to go to singles night or ladies night. Don't put yourself in a meat market kind of situation. You don't need to be in that situation. So that was kind of the principle from last time. So we go from stay away from the meat market in chapter 7 to is it okay to go to the meat market in chapter 8? See, the Bible just flows perfectly just like that. Uh, long before John Hadley was around in the ancient world, and I don't mean it like that, it's just I'm talking about in the ancient world, technically speaking, there were a couple places where you could get a good burger. You could go to the market and you could pay premium prices because everything was same day, right? It didn't, you know, truck burger across the country like in Costco's case or whatever there were no refrigeration or freezing capacity back in that day so everything was same day so meat was a premium it was very expensive uh, in that day or you could also buy the leftover meat that had been sacrificed to a pagan idol apparently the priests the so-called phony priests of that temple would take a portion of that meat that was offered up to an idol and then the leftovers were sold at a discount a lower price at either a restaurant or one of the butcher shops or markets around the immediate temple which that posed a dilemma for some of the christians there in corinth they were split upon the issue there were some christians who looked at that meat and said hey an idol is nothing Everything is sanctified by prayer. I'm on a budget. I'm going to buy the cheap stuff. And by the way, the cheap stuff was oftentimes the good stuff also. On the other hand, the other camp was like, are you kidding? I wouldn't buy that meat to save my life. I'd rather eat vegetables if I had to, if I couldn't afford meat, than eat meat that was offered up to an idol. Maybe because they didn't want to support the practice. Or maybe because their conscience was delicate related to those kinds of things maybe there's something in their past and we'll look at that this morning as well that would cause them maybe to feel condemned if they ate meat that was offered up to an idol 
Now, on the surface, I would concede to you your temptation at this point would be to tune me out thinking that this is wholly not applicable to you and I this morning. And I will agree also and concede that uh, this is probably the least asked question that I get in a counseling session. Hey, pastor, I was thinking lately, what are your thoughts on me offered up to idols? Don't get that question very often. Can you imagine walking into McDonald's and you're like, excuse me, before you wrap my quarter pounder with cheese, um, can I ask, has that been offered up to the Ronald McDonald statue in the back or something along those lines? I mean, they would think that you're outside of your mind. But just so you don't think that this scenario is just an ancient, obscure scenario that can only be related to in a practical way, and by the way, there is a practical lesson that we'll take out of this that is the important lesson in it. The meat itself isn't the issue. But it could well be that this is a scenario that Christians will face today. And I don't know this to be true firsthand. I've only heard. I have not researched this. But I've heard from some Christians that there is some meat today that is in our grocery stores not at Shopper's Corner or the Fish Lady, but some meat that has worked its way into grocery stores, mainstream grocery stores, that goes through a practice that is sort of like the Islamic equivalent of kosher, uh, what they call halal. The process itself doesn't really matter so much, except that uh, apparently this meat is offered up to and blessed in the name of Allah. Now, for some of you, that might make no difference, but put yourself in the shoes. Let's say it's Thanksgiving, and you're going to buy a turkey for Thanksgiving, and you're looking at one turkey, it's 35 bucks, and you're looking at one, it's 24. And the one that's 24 was blessed in the name of Allah. Would that change the way you looked at the two turkeys? And you don't have to comment on it. You don't even have to think about it because Paul's point here is it doesn't really matter. But at least you can bring it forward to today to think, well, yeah, I guess I can see why there might be some disagreement about this. Either way, and either way how you stand or how they would stand, just like Paul taught us in Romans chapter 14, whether or not someone chose to eat the meat that was offered up to idols, it didn't make them more or less spiritual. The issue was that they were being divisive about the issue, that everyone thought that they were right. And so more important than the debate itself, who's right and who's wrong, was the haughtiness of their attitude as it relates to the debate. Okay, he's going to address the issue and he's going to tell you what he thinks about it. But more importantly, as he begins here, he's talking about their arrogance. Middle of verse 1, he says, We know <clears throat> that we all have knowledge. So what is he saying there? He's saying, concerning things offered up to idols, we know we all have knowledge. What knowledge? Okay, I know that some of you know that an idol is nothing. Idols, schmeidels. They are a figment of man's imagination. They are crafted by man's hands. Paul's saying, I know that you know that an idol is nothing. He agrees with the camp that has the knowledge that there's nothing sinful in and of itself of buying or eating meat 
that had been offered up to an idol. And yet Paul declares there, end of verse one, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And there's a sense in which this is both true to officiate this debate, and there's a sense in which this is true just in regular life. Oftentimes I think I know something, you think you know something, and it puffs me up. In other words, we're full of hot air. And so now we think we're right and everybody else is wrong. And even worse about that, it tends to be the things that I'm right about or the things that we debate about falls into this sort of category of things, these sort of non-essentials. What Paul called in Romans 14, doubtful things, things the Bible doesn't say thou shalt or thou shalt not about. We tend to have real strong opinions of. And it's been said, your love may be tested more by Christians who disagree with you than by unbelievers who persecute you. I think that's a very good point because Christians disagree a lot. God's love is a totally and wholly unselfish love. Did you know that? We were upstairs praying ahead of time and we were hearing that song Hosanna in the background and she sings, uh, Lord, teach me how to love like you have loved me. That's God's love. It's a totally unselfish love. Did you know God's love is unselfish? Did you know God doesn't need you? I think there's this impression about God that like God was sitting around one day, he was bored, and he would, thought he would make a bunch of people so he'd be fulfilled. No, God is the only one in whom his entire reason for existence lies within himself. He doesn't need any of us. He created you for you. He did for your purposes. What a great God he is. He died for you. His love is totally unselfish. And so a knowledge that's not tempered by love, he says here, is not going to edify. It's going to puff up. The word edify is an important word in the New Testament. It means to build up. Well, a knowledge without love tends to tear down. But a knowledge with love tends to build others up. And, as we're going to see this morning, a knowledge, even if it's right, of my liberty that I have in Christ, again, apart from love, can be a dangerous thing. And we're going to see a couple reasons this morning why that's the case. Knowledge always needs to be subservient to love. And how will that look like in the body of Christ? It will look like preferring the needs of others above my own, preferring the convictions of others above my own. And one of the reasons for that is, well, again, because of the two reasons we're going to see. But another reason why I should not be so insistent when it comes to my knowledge is, well, when it's all said and done, I don't know that much. None of us really know as much as we think we do anyway. He says as much in verse 2. He says, and if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. So there's another scenario that both applies to the immediate argument, but also is a good overarching principle for our lives. You always know when someone doesn't know very much because they act like that, they act like they do. I don't know what that says about me, but I'm just saying that's part of the problem sometimes. They kind of expose themselves. Have you ever seen two people debating two opposite ends 
of an argument <laughs> and they're both 100% sure they're right, but you know one of them has to be wrong. You know, who won the 100 meter sprint in the 98 Summer Olympics? And they're just going at it and at it until they find out that there was no 98 Summer Olympics, it was 2000 or whatever the case may be. They're both wrong, but we can be so sure that we're right. Mark Twain said, the trouble with the world is not that people know too little, it's that they know so many things that ain't so. They know a whole lot of things that actually aren't even true. Really, the more anybody learns about a subject, got a lot of people in the room today with different backgrounds, different professions that you have, expertise. Now you know, because of the field that you're in, you know how much you don't know about what you supposedly know right you're supposedly an expert in whatever you do and your expertise shows you just enough to know how much you don't know i'm supposed to be a bible teacher of sorts okay the more i study the bible and i don't want you to go home right now but the more i study the bible the more I realize how much I don't know about God, the more I figure how much I need to learn about God. And so Paul here, as opposed to Romans 14, I think is leaning a little bit more on the knowledge folks here, the, the stronger, uh, those that felt like they had more liberty in Christ and putting the onus on them. I have liberty to eat this meat, all things are lawful, and I don't care if anybody sees me or stumbles, that's their problem. And Paul is saying, if that is your kind of attitude, you're really showing that you don't have a lot of knowledge, at least not about God's heart as it relates to these kinds of things. Because you look at the heart of Jesus Christ. If anyone ever had the right to not have to submit, it would have been Jesus Christ. If anyone ever had the right to not have to give up anything, it would have been Jesus Christ. Yet he gave it all. He went from always hearing the praises of angels to coming down here becoming a worm and listening to the taunts of silly men and they spat on him and they cursed at him and they beat him for us he didn't have to do that he didn't have to humble himself he made the greatest move of humility the greatest sacrifice unlike any sacrifice we think sometimes we make sacrifices we do but not like what Jesus did even in coming here, let alone dying on the cross. Hey, praise God that God doesn't always and exclusively evaluate us based upon his knowledge of what's going on inside of my heart. But instead, he looks at us with his perfect love. He looks at us through the lens of the cross, through the redemptive work of his son in dying for us there, or else we'd all be well, somewhere else this morning, not in this place, because of him. Don't ever forget, it's God who first loved us while we were yet sinners. And that's the knowledge that really matters. When it's all said and done, it's not really what you know, it's not really what I know. It's who we know and who knows us. That's what he says in verse 3. He says, but if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. And I really, really love that verse because, well, I know the Lord, you know the Lord. We read his word, we know things about God. 
But I take so much more comfort in knowing that he knows me, that he knows everything about me. Now that's both a little bit uncomfortable and comfortable at the same time. It's uncomfortable to know that God knows every wicked, evil, sinful thing that I've ever done. But it's very comfortable to know that he loves me anyway. Having all that knowledge. You all love me, not knowing everything about me. You might not love me if you knew everything about me, but God does. And that's what's great about his love for us. But because of that, because God knows everything, because we're known by him, we also know that that's where our liberty, that's where our personal convictions come from. They come from him. They come from his knowledge of us, which is why we ought never to impose our personal convictions upon one another. And the reason why is because I don't have that intimate knowledge of you, but God does. And because God has that knowledge of you, he places upon your heart those convictions for you. And so that's also why we need to operate in love as it relates to these so-called liberties. Because again, I don't have God's knowledge of you. I don't know you don't know my sensitivities. You don't know my convictions. You don't know what I know. I don't know what you know. A new believer could walk in here this morning. And to them, an idol can be real, maybe. Maybe. We live in Santa Cruz County. It's quite possible that someone could have grown up thinking there really is something to tarot cards. And so that when they see us playing cards, maybe they would potentially think that there's a problem with that. There's all kinds of reasons for people to think things that, you know, by knowledge is wrong. But Paul's trying to say, hey, we got to be patient, patient, patient with those kinds of folks, understanding, helpful of those folks. But before he gets into that, he just wants to make sure you know, okay? He just wants to make sure, just a very thorough point, verses four through six, to make sure you know there's really nothing to this. He says, therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. One God. And notice there in verse 6 where he says, yet for us there is one God. That's not Paul's saying, Paul's way of saying, hey, for Christians there's one God, but for other religions there's millions of gods. That does not work. Everyone knows it doesn't work, and that's not what he's saying. In fact, you can tell because in verse 5 he says, even if there are so-called lowercase g gods, as there are many gods and lords. You can put a pole in the ground and put a little face on it with a hat, and that can be a lowercase g god. But his point is there's nothing behind that. There's no entity. There's lots of idols that become gods. There's religions in this world that believe in hundreds of millions of gods. But there's no entity behind that idol. However, verse 7, he says, There is not in everyone that knowledge. So there are some people, there were at that time, maybe even still today, people that are Christians that may not have that knowledge that behind an idol ultimately there's nothing. Corinth was a very 
superstitious, polytheistic, like Hinduism, kind of uh, society. They believed in lots and lots of gods. And so perhaps a few Christians who were younger in the faith, virtually everyone in Corinth is pretty young in the faith at this point in time. Nobody been walking with the Lord for like 50 years or anything like that. So maybe there were a few people there that felt that if they did eat the meat that was offered up to idols, that they were participating in some kind of demonic worship. He says, middle of verse 7, for some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Now look at that word weak. Remember from Romans 14, Paul made the points, very fascinating point, that it is actually the weaker brother or sister that is more rigid in their rule keeping. Now that surprised me when I first studied that. I would think it would be the other way around. I would think it would be the more mature believer that would be more disciplined and would stay away from this and stay away from that and have a bunch of rules in their life. But Paul said it's the other way around. We have great liberty in Christ and it's actually the weaker brother who is stumbled by things uh, that the more mature believer is not. I can't believe that guy drives a car like that and he claims to be a Christian. Paul's saying that kind of attitude is the weaker brother, not the more mature one. But as opposed to Romans 14, here in this chapter, he is leaning more on the stronger, regardless of the weaker brother or sister's lack of knowledge and not understanding. He's leaning more on them to be sensitive, to look at the word their conscience. Their conscience is being weak. So that if or when they would eat the meat, though maybe you would have that liberty to do that, they do not have that liberty to do that, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Now, he's going to come back to this appeal in a minute, and that's where we'll make our couple points to wrap up this morning. But again, one more time, just to make sure that we know that meat offered up to idols is a non-issue. He says in verse 8, But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat, are we the worse. In other words, nothing you do as far as eating food makes you more spiritual. I don't care what anybody says. So when people come forward and say, well, here's the, the Daniel diet. I don't care. You want to do it, go ahead. But it doesn't make you more spiritual. Or if someone says, well, we only eat you know, this kind of food or that. That's fine. But it doesn't make you more or less spiritual in any way. It's through faith, not through food. It's through the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It makes no difference whether you eat meat or you don't eat meat at all whatsoever. Okay? And that's what he's saying. And that's true as it relates to any of these personal convictions. Any of these so-called liberties that we have. Things that the Bible does not expressly say, no, you should or should not do this. Again, the differentiation is made there in the beginning of 7 between marriage and being single. Once you're married, that's not an issue of uh, conviction. You don't get to go home and pray about that. There are laws in God's word about that. 
but as it relates to being single, as it relates to diet, those are things that are personal kinds of convictions. I'll give you an example. You know, growing up, some of you may have attended a church like I attended, where they would have been shocked if they heard about Christians going dancing. Shocked, outright shocked. But they'd have no problem walking across the parking lot smoking tobacco out of a pipe. That was common in the church that I grew up, and it was no big deal. And the same thing is true for movies and alcohol and music and television and even the way that we dress. There was a, a Bible conference one time back in 1928 that Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse was speaking at, and a group of women came to him one time because they were deeply concerned about a very sinful practice that the younger girls were engaged in. And that was this, that they were not wearing stockings. And they, he wanted him to condemn this spirit of compromise. And he said, well, the Virgin Mary didn't wear stockings. And they gasped and went, she didn't? He said, well, no, she would have no idea what those were. In fact, the first knowledge we have of any women wearing stockings were prostitutes in Italy in the 16th century. That pretty much put that argument to rest, and they were done talking about that for the rest of the day. But like meat, sacrifice to idols, and music, and dancing, and smoking, cultural taboos are a moving target. They move from generation to generation and from culture to culture. You know, in Christian circles in the West, for whatever reason, seems like drinking is sort of anathema out here. But we don't think very much about gluttony. Whereas it's just the reverse in Europe. Isn't that interesting? Pastors will go into the pubs and have a beer and talk about their sermon. It's just the reverse. Cultural taboos. In fact, it's an interesting story. I, I told you a little while back about Charles Spurgeon, how he smoked cigars, even in the pulpit. The Prince of Preachers, right? One of the great Bible teachers of all time. And one time, D.L. Moody, he wanted to go and meet Spurgeon. And so he came to the door of Spurgeon, he knocked on Spurgeon's door, and Spurgeon was smoking a cigar as he answered the door. And D.L. Moody was surprised and went, hey, how, how can a man of God like you be smoking a cigar? Well, D.L. Moody was kind of a, a larger man, and Spurgeon said, well, kind of in the same way that you eat there, boy, as he kind of patted him on the stomach. <laughs> I mean, all in fun, I guess. And so liberty dictates that we don't operate our ministries on a platform of a bunch of do's and don'ts. And all the more reason why, as Paul here returns to his appeal for an even greater principle, here. I mean, he could have just said, as it relates to eating meat offered up to idols, go ahead, it's fine, no big deal, chapter 9. He could have done that if he wanted to, but he wanted to use this as an opportunity to teach. And so look what he says, and again, different from Romans 14, a very different take home here. He says, verse 9, but beware, now he's talking to the mature believers, beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be, and there's that word, emboldened 
to eat those things offered to idols. So he's addressing now, again, more so the mature believer in their, quote, liberty, their freedom in Christ to do what they want. He says, well, what if someone who's weaker sees you and feels emboldened? And the idea behind that is they now think it's okay for them to do it because you being the more mature believer are doing it, so it must be okay for them. It's like you giving them permission to do that. True story, a pastor that I know of was telling one time about him and his wife. They went out to dinner one night in the area in which he pastors. And the maitre d' recognized him and welcomed them at the table. He said, Pastor, I know that you don't drink, so I'm going to bring something special for you. And so he brought out a bottle of uh, Martinelli's sparkling cider, placed it in one of those tubs with the ice, you know, that they put champagne or wine in. And so, of course, this made the pastor just as uncomfortable because from a distance, I mean, it looks like the exact same thing. Well, he didn't want to offend the maitre d'. And he's talking over with his wife and he goes, all right, let's just pound this really quick and get it out of here. So they finished off the cider really quickly and they took it away. Well, a few months later, they come back to the exact same restaurant. And the maitre d' says, oh, pastor, you're back. Should I bring you that sparkling cider again? He says, oh, no, 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 no. We'll just have Diet Cokes this time. He said, okay, fine. So a few minutes later, the maitre d' comes back out with Diet Cokes, but with cherries and little umbrellas on the top of them. Basically accomplishing the same thing. Not that there's anything wrong with putting an umbrella in your drink, but from a distance, he was concerned that someone would go by and go, oh, Oh, pastor's having a few. Okay for me to do it too. And that's the idea behind emboldened is that we run that risk of allowing, giving permission to people that don't have that permission from God to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. So you got the uh, mature believer, the mature believer, walking down the street, right? It's dinner time. He remembers they have those great barbecue ribs at the temple of Zeus or whatever on Friday nights in downtown Corinth and uh, smells that flavor from the street thinks to himself man I gotta go get some of that and perhaps he has the liberty in Christ to do that but maybe another Christian quote sees him looks to him as a mentor of sorts within that church body and perhaps that younger, less mature brother was saved out of that background. In other words, for them, that was a part of their worship. They did go in there, not just eat the meat, but as a part of their worship practice. See, so it might be fine for you to have a beer or go dancing or listen to music or whatever the case may be. You've grown in Christ. You've been given discernment. You've gained restraint. The Bible says all things are lawful, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And so if it doesn't have power over your life, it's between you and the Lord. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you what you can or cannot do. But what Paul is asking you to consider is what if this liberty of yours has the potential to embolden a weaker believer who does not have that liberty? And it's a fair question. And it's one of the two dangers of, you know, exercising our liberties in Christ is we might embolden, we might give permission to someone who doesn't have that permission to exercise 
that liberty. But there's one other one as we wrap up this morning, and that is that we can also stumble a believer as well. And those are two different things I'll explain here in a second. Verse 11, he says, And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So the first time Paul brings up the word sin in this chapter is here in verse 12, and it has no connection to the eating of meat at all whatsoever, does it? It has nothing to do with the eating of meat. It says, I sin when I cause a weaker brother to stumble. When I flaunt my liberties in front of them based upon my knowledge, even though my knowledge might be right, I don't need to insist upon my knowledge for the purpose of making a point. And I know and have known Christians that will flaunt a liberty just to prove how free we are in Christ. And I don't think we have to do that. I don't think we have to make a demonstration of our freedom in Christ. I don't think that's the point. I think Paul would say just the opposite. Last verse, he says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat. And in the King James, that continues, while the world standeth. So it's pretty dramatic. While the world stands, I won't eat meat again, lest, end of the verse, I make my brother stumble. So two reasons why they're one, because I can embolden them, which means I could give them permission to watch something they wouldn't normally watch, to listen something they wouldn't listen to, to taste something they wouldn't normally taste, to go somewhere they normally wouldn't go. Or number two, I might make them stumble. What does he mean by stumble? They could fall away. They could potentially walk away from the Lord or walk away from the church. Or they could, oh, they're a bunch of hypocrites. You heard someone say that to you before, haven't you? All those Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. And I'm not saying we have to be perfect people because there's a difference between stumbling a weaker brother and stumbling someone into legalism. You don't have to worry about stumbling someone into legalism. If someone wants to find fault with you, they'll find fault with you. But there is something here to be said about being concerned about stumbling someone who has a weak conscience in a particular area and using some discretion as God leads you. I'll never ever forget, I may have even told you this story before, if I did, I'm sorry. I don't remember these things anymore. But my dad's best friend growing up, he was not a pastor or a deacon in the church or anything like that, but he may as well have been. He was the lead vocalist in the choir. If the church did a, a play or a musical, he was the lead, phenomenal voice. If the kids had a play, he was the lead. He would teach Bible studies, very talented, gifted man. And I knew him for many, many years growing up. He wasn't really a drinker at all. I'd have a drink every now and then. And he was an insurance salesman. And one day he was out on business and he was with a group of men kind of near the church. And they were doing business and they all just decided to have a beer. And he wasn't the kind of guy that drank in the middle of the day, but he decided that uh, he would just join in with them and have one drink. And right about that point in time, someone walked into this restaurant saw him, had this big smile on his face, and went, hey, aren't you the guy at First Baptist Church of, and I'll leave it out, First Baptist Church of down the street, 
and you're the one that sings in all those plays and all those kinds of things. And he's like, yeah, that's me. And he looked down in that beer and went, okay, have a good day and walked away. And to this day, he doesn't know whether he stumbled him, whether he was judged. He doesn't know whether he thought he had one or five. It haunted him for years. Now, I'm not trying to put a trip on you. And if in any way that's what this comes across, forgive me. Because remember, go back and play Romans 14. We said just the opposite. Paul is balancing the two out. In Romans 14, he's saying, get over your legalism. Quit pointing the finger at what someone else is doing. Mind your own business. Here he's saying, love dictates. You know what? Apostle Paul says, I don't care if I don't ever eat meat again. John's cheeseburgers. I'll give them up if I have to in order to make sure I don't stumble someone ever again in my life. I know we live in an overly offended generation. There's no question about that. And I know you can't watch every step that you make. <laughs> but at the same thing, at the same time, I think we can err, err on the side of discretion, caution, being led by the Lord. I've made mistakes along these lines as well. Things I wish I hadn't done that I regret. And I think it's better, as Paul would say here, better to err on the side of love, patience with someone who might be more sensitive to that particular issue. You'll never regret not exercising your liberty. Agreed? You'll never regret not insisting upon exercising your liberty in Christ in any questionable scenario at all whatsoever. As a, a man said to me this week, as he was driving and someone cut him off, he got angry at that person and he said, as clear as day, as clear as day, God said to me, I love that person too. You'll never regret allowing love to surface in any decision-making that you have in your life.